If you would, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 as we continue our verse-by-verse study in this amazing book. Romans 7, I'll begin reading in verse 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 943. Page 943. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For now I have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans, but flashback a few weeks. So a few weeks ago, Blake said these words. He said that we have been released from the law. So to be released from the law, meaning that we who have been set free from the bondage of sin, we are now in Christ. Now as God's people, if we have been born again, we are free and we are free to serve the Lord. So only those who have been born again can serve Jesus Christ because they are not under the law, but they are under grace. Those who have put their faith and trust and hope in Christ and Christ alone we, we have died to sin. We are no longer held captive by it. For our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, He has freed us by His grace. We are now slaves of Him. We are His adopted children. In today's verses, Paul instructs the church not to throw out the law of God. Now, as God's people... And especially in our culture, we hear so much about we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need the law of God. There are some who dismiss the Old Testament completely. There are even some who dismiss the law of God. And in return, the result of that is that people think wrongly of God. That the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from God of the New Testament. We are not to believe this. God does not change. Malachi 3, verse 6. The God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is the same God who does not change. The same God who spoke all things into existence is the same God that you and I are here this morning worshiping. We have one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence, one substance. So today's verses are a plea, a cry for us as God's people to understand and grasp the importance of God's law. But I also want you to see the amazing love of God in Jesus Christ the Son through the law. After justification comes sanctification of the believer. And within the realm of sanctification The law of God is still at work. The law is not done. So there are four pillars in which I want you to keep in mind as we study and look at today's verses. Four pillars. Pillar number one. If you believe that the Holy Bible is God's Word, you agree, you must agree, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable for you as His child, based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
Pillar two. If God gave us his law, and Jesus said he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, it is still of great value. It's still of great value. Matthew 5, 17, and Romans 3, verse 31. Pillar 3. The law was never meant to justify you, but to shut your mouth. I love this one. The law of God was never meant to justify you, but to shut your mouth and cause you to look at the giver of the law, the Lord. Romans 3, verse 19. And pillar 4, the law of God is written on your heart. Romans 2, verse 15. The law of God is written on your heart. The word law here that Paul uses is not just the Mosaic law. It is a Mosaic law, but it's not just the Mosaic law. The words of John MacArthur help in describing the word law that Paul uses. It's that instinctive sense of right and wrong that produces guilt when violated. It's an awareness of God's law and a warning system that activates when one chooses to ignore or disobey the Lord. Longman III put it this way, Paul is not interested so much in identifying which law he has in mind as in pointing to the character of law as that which has binding force. So the word law here is more than the Mosaic law. As Jesus said in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, in summarizing the commandments, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the law is more than not doing something, for it also includes loving the Lord. Paul is pointing us to the character of law. Look at Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law has set, not said, you shall not covet. You know, God's children have been told the following four things that lead up to Romans 7, verse 7. If you look at Romans 7, verse 1, he begins telling us four things that we need that he keeps building upon and building upon. Look at Romans 7, verse 1. The law is binding on those who are physically alive. So if you can understand that and you're hearing this, you are physically alive. Therefore, the law is binding on you. Number two, we find in Romans 7, verse 4, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Obviously, context here, Paul is speaking to those who have been born again. Number three, Romans 7, verse 4, you belong to Jesus Christ in order to bear fruit for God. God doesn't save you so that you can live for yourself. God doesn't save you so that you can do what you want. God doesn't save you so you can ignore the law of God and continue to live how you live. God saved you in order to bear fruit for him. And then Romans 7, verse 6. You've been released from the law that held you captive to serve the new way of the Holy Spirit. You are no longer condemned but you will obey the Lord. Why? Because you are His. Throughout Romans, more than any other book in the Bible, Paul uses rhetorical questions. And these rhetorical questions, they draw in his audience specifically to an audience whom he's never met. Look back at Romans 6, verse 1. Paul's language is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, may it never be. God forbid that we live that way. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 15 and 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? 
that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And now, in our verse today, Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. It's as if Paul is he's saying this, he's saying this, he's saying this. What shall we say then? By no means. No! We don't think that way, we don't live that way. Yet if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So we don't continue in sin so that grace may abound. We don't sin because we are under grace. And we don't say, we don't teach, and we don't believe as Christians that the law of God is sin. Paul is saying to those in Rome and to us this morning, may it never be, God forbid, Don't continue in sin so that grace may abound. Don't sin while under grace. And don't believe that the law of God is sinful. I love the two truths that Paul declares here in verse 7 concerning the truth of God's law. Number one, he said, Yet if it not had been for the law, I would not have known sin. God's law is so good that it reveals sin. Sin to his children and sin to his enemies. Our great God did not turn his back on humanity. He gave them a promise of a Savior. God did not sentence all to hell when sin entered the world. He gave a promise that he would save some. As God's children, this should overwhelm us. We should all be overwhelmed with this. But especially as God's children, we should be floored that a holy, a righteous, a just, and a good God would save us. That how could we as God's children ever forget, ever get over the truth that God saves sinners, people who don't deserve salvation? How can we Not be overcome with God's grace. Be overcome with His mercy. How can we, in response to that, also not live lives as His children, obeying His commands, knowing what He has done for us? May it never be. The law is not sin. For the law drives us to the gospel by showing us our sin. The human dilemma, it's not God's law. The law of God here is not the problem. We are the problem. God's law is not sinful. It reveals our sin as sinners. So we are not to look at the law of God and say it is sinful because it shows us our sin. Humanity does that on every front. We look at things and we say, oh, no, That's negative. I need that out of my life. Because we don't want to be confronted with the reality. We should praise the Lord for the law. It reveals our wicked and dead spiritual state before the Lord. The law reveals our true nature. The law points us to Jesus. He kept the law. He succeeded. We have failed. Christ is the second and greater Adam. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded, and Christ is the new covenant of grace. We should rejoice with truth number one. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Truth two. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So sin... Missing the mark, sin, our fallen state, sin, rebellion against God, sin, distrust of God, sin, rejection of God, sin, unbelief, sin, separation from God, disobedience of God. Not only has humanity not liked the word sin, most churches do not like the word sin anymore. 
Sin does not bring about happiness. Sin is missing our created purpose. Sin is fighting against your creator, your sustainer, the one who made you in his image, the one who created you to enjoy him and give glory to him forever. God's law makes known to us that you and I, we are sinners who have fallen while God is holy. And Paul here, he points to commandment 10 in the Decalogue found in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, verse 17, we find these words, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So the Apostle Paul declared that he would not have known what it is It was sinful to covet, and the law had not said, you shall not covet. So every heart has God's law written on it. Those who believe and those who don't believe. That's why there is no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic, because God's law is written on your heart. You are just, as Romans 1 says, you are suppressors of the truth. Every heart has God's law written on it. So the law, God's law, it was given to mankind, not by man. God's law was given to mankind by the Lord. Think about that for a second. The one who has authority over your life. The one who owns everything. The one who created everything. The one who spoke all things into existence. He has given you His law to live by. God gave us His law. And when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, Jesus did not abolish the law. Jesus strengthened it. Hold your spot in Romans 7 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. In Matthew 5, we have Jesus who is giving clarification, and he uses these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, so has heaven and earth passed away? Not an iota. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished and everything hasn't been accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You know, the scariest aspect to me in my life is when I think about that, is what he says at the very end. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. There are many individuals who call themselves Christians, and they actually believe that they are saved by what they do or by what they have done. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of these people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And right before that, what did he say? He said, the law of God is not to be relaxed by anyone. He says, Jesus didn't abolish the law. Think about this. If Jesus didn't abolish it, who are you and I, who, whom he created, who are we to abolish what he has made. Jesus said, if you obey the law of God and you teach the law of God, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I love what Baptists have said and taught since the 1600s. I wish we would all get back to this line of thinking. And so I ask that you listen clearly to these words that we find in the London Baptist Confession of 1689. He says, true believers are not under the law 
as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. So the law doesn't save. Yet, it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. So the law of God that he's given to us, it doesn't justify us, it doesn't sanctify us, but what's it say? The law of God, it shows us God's will, number one, and the law of God that he has given to us freely, a perfect gift, it shows us our duty as his creation. Oftentimes, we don't use the word duty much anymore, except little kids laugh when they hear it sometimes. But it's like God saying, I'm showing you what you are to do with your life. When you get up in the morning, you know what you're to do. When you go to work, you know what you're to do. When you're with your husband or you're with your wife, when you're with the children, you know what you're to do. You know what you're to say. You know how you are to act. I have given you this. I have not only made you, I've showed you how to live. What a glorious gift. They go on to say, it directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. It's no wonder that today's church doesn't speak much about the law because they don't even like the word sin. Why would they want to hear about how they're displeasing the Lord? As they examine themselves in light of the law, that's the key. I have been to too many funerals and heard too many sermons in which there is no plea for examination. They come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. Some of us this morning, we just need to confront our sin and we need to hate it. Because for too long we've delighted in it along with a clear view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. You see, when we hate sin more, we have a clear view of our Savior and how much we need him for all things. The law is also useful to regenerate, to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law, shows them that even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promise of the law, likewise, shows them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. Oh, I love that. Because it's saying that just because you are in Christ, just because you have God's law, what God's law has shown you and revealed to you by God's grace overall as an umbrella, you still need the law of God to live in this life to glorify him. Even though you're under grace. So the law of God is useful. The law of God exposes our sin. The law shows us our great need of a Savior, the one who kept the law perfectly. The law provides our duty. The law restrains corruption. It forbids sin. The law shows us that God, what God smiles upon as those who have been purchased by the blood of His Son. For those born again, the law increases hatred of sin as we see more and more of the holiness of God. God's law gives us his will for our life. How wonderful is this? May it never be that we say we do not need the law of God. God is pleased when his children who are under grace keep the law for his glory. As a Christian, you should be able to reflect
reflect upon your life, your past experiences, your trials, your temptations and different things, and to see how the law of God has exposed sin. To see how the law of God has kept you from sin. To see how the law of God has convicted you of sin and pointed you to Christ the Savior in praise and glory for all that He has done. The law has confirmed in our minds and our lives we are not wasting our life, but we are living for Him. So within the character of law, what Paul is discussing I want us to take a brief moment and look at the Mosaic Law for just a moment. So the Ten Commandments. Often we have children memorize these Ten Commandments. We have individuals and grandmothers and grandfathers have those on their wall in their home. And so here at this church, if little kids memorize it, we give them a gold coin that's got on it for the purpose of hopefully they'll put it in their pocket and they'll flip it around and play with it, and they'll think about how important it is about God's law, but also God's amazing grace. But as adults, sometimes what we impress upon our children, we forget to maintain in our own life. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Brothers and sisters, you and I have failed in that this past week. Two, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who who love me and keep my commandments. So we're not to make anything else, create a God that does not exist, to bow down to worship individuals, false gods, because we are to have only one God, the God of the Scriptures. Number three, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We don't use God's name wrongly. We don't say anything about the Lord that is not true, that is not found in His Word. We don't use His name as a cuss word, as a filler word. We don't use it in any appropriate manner because we revere the name for what it represents, the Lord. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rest on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fact that many do not want to get up and rise up and to gather with the church and worship the Lord shows their lack of reverence for the one who made them and commanded them. Number five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. No matter their spiritual status, no matter how they treat you, As a child, you have a father, and yes, you have a mother, and you are to honor them, and that pleases the Lord. That's enough said. You shall not murder. But those who have been made in the image of God, we do not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Meaning, we don't elevate our needs and what has happened to us. We don't elevate what we want out of something. We are to do something that God has said. Do not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, which Paul mentions here in Romans 7. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. God's law is good. It is not sin. God's law has thrust us into obedience by God's grace. It has caused us to flee temptation. It has made us rejoice in, his, in the fact that he would save sinners. God's, he has taught us and he has convicted us and he has matured us all through the grace and the channel of God's law. God's law has come to our minds time and time again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't do this! Don't lie. Don't go down this trail. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not do that. That is not pleasing to me. Obey my commands. Follow me. Listen to me. Don't go this way. Go this way. Seek me. Use your life to please me. My law is here. It is for your good, my child. It is for my glory. God's law is good. We know what sin is because of God's law. Charles Spurgeon said, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. He said, lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. That's the problem. Most individuals, they don't want to feel guilty about anything because they don't want to think. He said, this is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction as well as conversion. He says, I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, its most powerful weapon, when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Jesus Christ. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. The law is needed to bring people to Christ, but you don't stop there. As Christians, we don't say, see, the law is important before salvation. No, may you never believe that. The law is also needed as part of your sanctification as his child. Do you not think that throughout your daily life, throughout minute by minute, you need the Lord, you need the law to tell you, hey, you don't do this because we forget. The law continues to point us to Jesus as his children. It shows us how Christ lives, lived. It showed us how we are to live. That we are no longer a slave of sin, but we need the reminder as forgetful people of what not to do. As a parent instructs their child, do not do this. As a child, we also need to be told by God, do not do this. We also need to be told by God, this is what I want you to do. We need to be reminded, this is what pleases your father and mother. We need to be reminded, this is what pleases the Lord. You need to know what your parents hate. We need to know as God's children what our creator and sustainer and Lord of all creation hates and despises. We need to know what true worship is, not what we have created worship to be, so that we rightly worship Him. The law is not sin. But we have a problem. Look at Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, oh, to this is so deep, did you catch that? So, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So, when does sin ever take a break? Produce in me all kinds of covetousness. So, even with God's law that He has given, His perfect law in which He has given to, to us as image bearers, sin, 
takes that law and tries to twist it and do all sorts of things that would dethrone the Lord. For it says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So our sinful acts do not flow from the law. Our sinful acts flow from our sinful desires because we were conceived in sin, born sinners, separated from a holy God. The law is not sin. We were born rebels against God. R.C. Sproul put it this way, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This is key. And without this key, we don't get the gospel right. We fail in getting the gospel right. And we reduce Jesus Christ to something that we should politely and with great manners add Jesus to my life as a piece to make my life better. That's not the gospel. We are rebels against God. We are fully wicked. And God's law brings out what is in our hearts. James Montgomery Boyce said, The law reveals sin as sin and provokes sin. So the law of God reveals the deadly nature of human sin. The deadly nature of us. The law awakens sin. So sinners see the law and they use the law as a way to increase sin. But the problem is not the law of God, it is the sinner. So these verses help us understand Paul and his own journey. They reveal what happened to him on the road to Damascus, that Paul thought the law promised him life. He thought he was pleasing the Lord. He thought he was doing what was right. He thought the law saved him. The law actually brought death to him, not life. Through God's law, Paul learned that he could not keep it, that the law of God killed Paul. It drove out all self-righteousness and it showed him all his filth. The law of God attached to the grace of God revealed the holiness of God on that road. The law of God is not sin. What is the law of God? Romans 7 verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's conclusion of God's law is not that God's law is sin, but that God's law is holy. The law that God has given us is holy and righteous and good, just like him. That at all times, at all points in history, God's gifts that God gives are holy, right, and good, just like him. He gives perfect gifts. Our great God gives perfect gifts, and the law, it is a perfect gift. All that God commands is holy. Therefore, it's not legalism to obey the law of God. All that God commands is righteous. Therefore, we can't say, well, I don't have to do this. All that God commands is good. Therefore, we must do what he commands. The law of God is holy, and we are not to ignore holy gifts. That would be like a child opening up a gift at his birthday or at Christmas, and he has finally received what he wants. And you just see like the smile go from rim to rim, like, yes! And then he puts it aside, never touching it again. Never playing with it, never taking it out of the box. God's people, we do not do that with what God has given us. The law of God is holy. We don't ignore holy gifts. I hate to use R.C. Sproul again, but I'm going to because these words help us and they help us to understand and to comprehend, to explain the holiness of the law. So the law of God is holy, just, and good, but what happens when a holy and just law is delivered to unholy creatures? They do not think it is very just. When God puts a restraint upon our desires, we say, that's not fair. As if there were some hint of injustice in the character of God. 
But the law of God is good because he is good. The law of God was designed to bring life, but we turn it into an occasion of death. That last line is pure gold. The law of God was designed to bring life, but we turn it into an occasion of death. The law reveals our great need for spiritual life. We are not good. We cannot save ourselves. I have had other gods. I have lied. I have stolen. I have committed adultery with my mind and with my thoughts. The law reveals that we need a Savior. God in His holy law is good. It points to all that Jesus Christ is. And He is the only Savior of the world. And Paul gives a further example in Romans 7. He says, do not covet. Thomas Watson speaks to this to help us understand how God's law is so good. He said, a man is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that for the love of them he will part with heavenly. For the wedge of gold he will part with the pearl of price. No matter your spiritual maturity, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter what you think you know and you don't need to be reminded of, you have coveted this past week. You have coveted today. You have, you have suppressed the things of God and you have pursued the things of this world. You have given up what is gold for that which is greater than all the things of God and God himself. He went on to say, a man may be said to be given to covetousness when he takes more pains for getting earth than for getting heaven. How I wish men and women would live their life in such a way that an outsider or an other Christian could look upon them and it would look as if they are serving the Lord. But what we mostly see in this life, and maybe it's a failure of, of people doing examination, maybe it's a failure of other things, or maybe we're judging wrongly, but we should be living our life not for the sake of the dollar, not for the sake of one more item, not for the sake of to get this so that I have more or I can give this. We should be giving all of life so we're not building up this earth, but we are building up heaven. We are living for the Lord. When His thoughts are wholly taken up with this world, may we never go throughout the day not thinking once about the Lord. Otherwise, we're not singing, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. We're actually saying with our life, in the morning when I rise, give me more of this world, even though it's passing away. He goes on to say, He is given to covetousness whose heart is so set upon the world that to get it, he cares not what unlawful means he uses. That, that's Romans 1, the depravity being rolled out and stuffed into a bag into one line. It's saying that people get to the point to where they don't care what they have to do to get it. They just have to give it. Covetousness is a dangerous sin as it checks all that is good. It is an enemy of grace. It damps good affections as the earth puts out the fire. So God's law is good for us. It can be nothing but good and holy and righteous. When we covet, we sin. We are not to be consumed with the world. We are not to allow worldly business to overload our life. Our heart is not to be set on this world. Our heart is to be set on nothing but Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? The trials and the struggles that you presently have, you glorify Christ in those. Whether it's with your marriage, whether it's with your children, whether it's with your work, whether it's outside circumstances that I can't explain, you honor Christ in all things, and that's always good. We are to live for the Lord in this life, and as a Christian, I think sometimes we forget, we are to be ready to die. The preaching of God's Word is not just for this life. The preaching of God's Word is also to prepare you to stand before Him. God and His Word makes you ready for death. The law of God is not sin. 
The law is holy and good. God's law, it is a perfect gift. God's law reveals his standard of righteousness. And I hope you can all agree that you have not reached that standard. And you never will. You need Christ. His law reveals sin. It reveals that we are full of wickedness and we cannot remove our sin. We need a righteousness that is outside of us. So child of God, if you've been born again, if you're sure of your salvation this morning, you are under grace. Christ has removed your sin. Praise Him. Don't just praise Him in here. Your world's a sanctuary. Praise Him. Live for Him. You can now follow God. You can now please God. You can now keep His commandments. You can make Him smile upon you with the life that you live because He knows you and He knows that you're living for Him. Follow His commands. Keep His commands. You are now free to obey the Lord. Obey Him. You can enjoy the Lord. You can please Him because you are under grace. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. Praise Him for your salvation. Praise Him for what He has done. And to the one this morning who has not tasted Jesus, you are under law. You need to be under grace, but you're under law. And the law condemns you. Right now, you stand before the Lord and you are guilty. You're guilty. You're in a court of law and the Lord looks upon you. You are a sinner who needs forgiveness. And grace is only found in His Son. Scripture says, God has said, call on Christ for salvation. In Romans, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You're calling on Christ of the Bible. You're calling on the one who has died on the cross for sin. Ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. Come before Him. Throw yourself before Him and say, Lord, save me. If you have not tasted Christ, you are under law. You need Christ. Christ is the greatest thing. As Christians, we reflect upon this daily and we think of the great exchange. Look at it this way. If you're in your home, add up all your possessions. Put it all together. Empty out all your bank accounts. Put it all into one little table and pile it all together. Trade it all for Christ. Christ far outweighs everything that you can think or imagine. Anything you gain for the next hundred years, Christ is better than all of it. It's the great exchange. He not only takes away all of our things that we consider precious, but He takes away our sin. He takes away our filth. He takes away our guilt. He takes away everything. And He gives us what we can't even think or imagine. He gives us what we can't even spend a lifetime of diving into and understanding Himself. And he says, not only that, I'm going to bring you home. And you're going to be forever with me for all your days. With no more sin, no more pain, no more struggle. You will be with me. You will have me. The sun and the sky will be no more. I will be your sun. All the turmoil that you've experienced, it, I, I'm using that for my name and for my glory. All the pain and all the suffering, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. It's the great exchange. He takes away all of our sin. He takes away all of our struggles. He takes away death. He takes away the sting of it. And He gives us Himself. Faith, our faith is grabbing hold of the righteousness of Christ. It's not a righteousness that we have. It's not a righteousness that we have conjured up. It's an alien righteousness. So when one repents of their sins, puts their trust in Christ, that faith grabs hold of Christ. And so God the Father looks at us. He no longer sees a sinful man, a sinful woman. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ. 
The law of God is holy. The law of God is righteous. The law of God is good. It is just like him. Father, I thank you for your word. As we began this service, Lord, confessing our sins and thinking about areas in which we have rebelled against you, Lord, forgive us for downplaying the perfect gift of your law. Forgive us for not cherishing what you have preserved for us 2,000 years later to know and to study. Lord, forgive us for building up kingdom after kingdom of things on this earth when we need to build, be building up treasures in heaven for you and your glory. Lord, forgive us when we labor just for what we can touch with our hands. By your Spirit, Lord, help us to cherish and to obey your law, to love your law, not for salvation, but because we love you and it's good to obey what you have given us. Lord, for the lost, they cannot come to you alone. So we come before you praying that you would draw them. Lord, to the Christian who is struggling this morning, Father, I pray by your power you would remind them through your word of your greatness, your holiness, your righteousness, how your grace is beyond anything that we can fathom or fully understand for this lifetime. That you are truly everything. May that not just be true in our minds and our hearts, but with our strength and with our life. May you truly be reflected that you are everything. You are worthy of our worship in this place. You are worthy of our worship when we leave this place. You are worthy of worship in the bedroom, in the workplace, in our house. You are worthy of worship in the shadows. There is not a place on this earth in which you are not worthy of us living all of our life for you. Open our eyes as Christians to see that more clearly. Open up the eyes of the lost so they would be overwhelmed with your great love. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen.